0: Hey friends at Community Bible Church, if you're watching this, it means our attempt to connect earlier today (laughs) didn't work out, and so you're watching something that I recorded earlier so that at least I could communicate with you. So thank you for inviting me to join with you at your 40th anniversary. Um, You all have been an important part of my own experience of leading InterVarsity's ministry here in the states of New York and New Jersey over the last five years. It's been great to be able to be with you on so many different occasions and to be welcomed into your fellowship, and so it's a treat for me to be here with you even in this illusory way that we have here uh, via a recorded message. Um, I was asked to share what are some of the major challenges to the church in the 21st century, and I'm not sure I could really speak for the entire 21st century, because I'm not even sure what needs to happen in the next 20 years. But I did want to outline for you a few things that I think are challenges to the church as we think about faithfulness, if not for the rest of the century, then at least for the next 20 or 30 years. The first one might be best defined by what we're doing right here, Um, the advent of technology. In any other era, it would have been um, impossible for somebody 20 plus miles away to join you this evening, and yet, thanks to the power of technology, voila, I'm here. I think um, there are two things to notice about technology, one of which is the way it really not only allows us to communicate, but actually it shapes our identity as well. I had the opportunity when I was deciding where to film this, what the backdrop would be, and since I'm speaking on one of the challenges of the future, I of course chose a whole bunch of books behind me. Um, It's one of the things that technology is allowing, probably not us, but the generation to come to do, is to choose how they're going to present themselves and how to shape their identity in ways that really um, have never been done before on Facebook, or MySpace, or on Second Life, or even here, when I get to choose what I'm wearing and how you're going to perceive me from the things behind me, Um, I have an opportunity to choose the persona I'm living in and the persona that I want you to, to encounter. And if you talk to uh, younger college students, they'll tell you they're very intentional about the pictures they're choosing, the quotes that they're using, the ways that they're describing themselves there, on Twitter, on other social media, to convey one aspect of who they are, a very carefully chosen one that will determine the way that you relate to them. I think one of the great challenges for us as we look into the next couple decades is the entire sense of who we are and our identity is far less solid and far less constant for the coming generation than it was for people in our own. Um, college students nowadays, nowadays uh, change identities, change beliefs, change attitudes, change lifestyles, a lot like they change their clothing styles. It's quick, it's instantaneous, often with a lot of effort or without a lot of thought. What does it mean for the church to engage with people whose very um, understanding of who they are changes every couple months or couple years. The other thing that um, technology does for our identity is, it actually shapes who we're becoming. There's an interesting book that a colleague of mine has been reading called The Shallows. And in the book The Shallows, the author argues that every form of media that you have actually shapes and changes the ways that your brain functions. So uh, way, way back when um, Socrates and Plato had a significant argument on the value of the written word. Socrates arguing in effect that uh, by allowing words to be written down and memorialized in a book you were actually affecting the ways people think because they no longer have the kind of memory necessary to think through, to uh, meditate over and to understand a long uh, dialogue or a conversation without the aid of a written tool. And that essentially people become mentally lazy uh, if they had books. Well, clearly, Socrates lost that argument, but um, a similar kind of dynamic is happening now, right, with the advent of the internet and of television. Um, in the book, Amusing Ourselves to death, uh, death, Neil Postman said that, you know, back at the time of Abraham Lincoln, people used to, be able to sit and listen for hours to a presidential debate where people, where the candidates would speak, not just for 30 or 40 second or two minute sound bites, but for 20 to 40 minutes at a time, answering and rebutting each other. Well. Now our attention span is roughly about 35 seconds, and I've probably already passed my limit here. Um, added to the shortness of our memory is that our learning has become incredibly visual, and we think less linearly than, to borrow a phrase from the internet, more in a hypertext way, where from any one point we can jump somewhere else. Well, let me ask what some of the implications are for us at the church at this point. The very way we approach scripture and understand it is a reasonably linear process. You do all of your observation, you begin to uh, compile your observations into an interpretation about what the text actually means, and then you ask how to apply it. It's a pretty linear process with admittedly some intuitive leaps. What happens when you have a generation that never learned to read or think linearly? How do you communicate the truths of the gospel, the fundamental beliefs about what it means to be a Christian, or even how to study our sacred texts? where they haven't learned to read in the way that those texts presume. I want to suggest that um, it may be in this area that poets may be a great help to us. Well, another way that technology shapes us, obviously, is the fact that we're communicating. I'm 23 miles away, and yet you're hearing me. There's something about technology um, (coughs) that allows relationships to form, but a very specific kind of relationship, isn't there? Um, With technology, due to phones, due to the internet, email or Skype, we can stay in touch with people at distances over which relationship would have been nearly impossible before. So there is an ability of the internet and technology to allow groups of people who had never met before, who may never meet in person, to develop very authentic relationships that are critical, life-giving and life-forming. Laura Barquette was talking about that in uh, the past issue of Christianity Today. The ability to write poetry with groups of people that you may never meet in person but have an opportunity to engage with uh, uh, in space. On the other hand, while it allows us to build some kind of relationships, it doesn't allow us to build the face-to-face, experiencing life uh, on a day-by-day basis, unvarnished and largely uncensored you can have by living in a community together and I suspect that's one of the virtues of living out where you all do is that you have a greater opportunity to do that. I don't think the technological relationships are necessarily worse than what we've experienced in the past. They're certainly different. They expand the range of what we can do but they pose challenges (coughs) to a community of faith like ours which believes in the importance of uh, people being accountable to one another Uh, people speaking into one another's lives, people being able to pray for one another uh, because we're able to witness to one another and witness with one another what life is about. And while a lot of that can be done and facilitated by internet communication, there's something very different about living just next door to someone, being in a weekly small group face-to-face over the course of a year where it has nothing to do with whether uh, you happen to log on that day, but just because you chose to show up. Well, Let me jump from the type of relationships, the greater span of relationships that we're experiencing um, to a different reality beyond technology, which is globalization. Um, Today I took my daughter to the park and as we were headed there and at the park, I heard at least 10 or 12 different languages. I heard uh, Arabic, I heard Korean, I heard Chinese, I heard English, I heard French, I heard Portuguese, I heard uh, Italian, Um, I heard at least one or two Slavic languages, which I couldn't determine which they were. Um, as well as one or two African languages. The world is no longer out there, it's actually here in our neighborhoods. I think this does well, and you experience it all the time, right? The world is at your doorstep, the world is in uh, your job site, it's in your neighborhood, it's in your schools. Uh, What uh, sociologists tell us is that by 2031 uh, white children will be a minority in our school system and by 2050 uh, whites will no longer be a majority in the United States. They'll merely be um, in the plurality. There are two effects of that, one of which is uh, we're becoming an increasingly multi-ethnic global society. And so we're going to be challenged to relate to, identify with and build community with a much broader range of people than um, Americans have ever been challenged to do with before. In many ways we're reliving the reality of uh, the massive flow of immigration that happened in the mid to late 1800s, but without the ability or frankly much of the desire to live in completely separate communities from one another. Um, How will we develop the kind of cross-cultural skills necessary to bring the gospel from our communities into every community that we begin to encounter? I want to also suggest that um, this kind of uh, globalization and uh, pluralism has an effect, I think, on our ability, uh, or at least our convictions about sharing our faith. It was one thing, I I suspect, for many of us to support and pray for missionaries who were going over there to speak to people that we never knew about why our faith was actually the true faith and the right faith and the only faith that brings you to life, which we do believe. Um, But what does it mean actually have to do that to our neighbor who we live with, who we see on a day-to-day basis, to um, the parent of a child in our school system, uh, to our colleague that we have to interact with work on a daily basis, to actually have the kind of conversation where you can look one another in the eye and say, I fundamentally disagree with you about the nature of reality. I believe my description of reality as formed by the scriptures is actually more correct, more accurate, and more critical to know more truthful in every way than your own. It sounds almost frightening to say it that way, doesn't it? Um, The reality of pluralism which I think God invites us to is that we're often challenged with relativism. What does it mean to declare Christ's uniqueness in a world where all of a sudden the foreign gods and foreign peoples are not merely over there, they're over here right now. I think (coughs) part of that pluralism also will affect uh, the way we understand ourselves as Americans in two ways. Um, It seems pretty clear to me that America's uh, preeminence on the world stage is beginning to change. Uh, China will leapfrog us in terms of the world's largest economy uh, without uh, many more years to go. Uh, India is not far behind. There are other superpowers in the world that challenge our own dominance. And while that was true about America in the past, it hasn't been true in our own living memory. What will it mean for us to minister in a context where I believe there's gonna be increasing fear, and as a result, incivility and anger in um, America as we struggle to redefine ourselves, not as a nation of white, largely white European immigrant settlers who share a common Western heritage with deeply profound uh, biblical values embedded in it, but actually an incredibly multi-ethnic diverse country with with very few shared senses of values other than the need to make money. We'll come back to that later. But also in a country where uh, assuming we are the best, the brightest and the strongest is no longer true. There was an article recently in the New York Times which said we're now number 11 um, around the world in terms of the number or percentage of our students that we send to college. Uh, We're declining in our math and reading um, proficiencies and no longer anywhere near the top. But America still ranks number one in terms of self-esteem among its elementary school students. As one uh, pundit put it, we're dumber but more pleased with ourselves. What will it mean for us to minister in an environment where I think increasing insecurity and fear become part of the daily context that we live in? I mentioned materialism. I think as America potentially declines economically and loses its dominance, our desire to protect ourselves and satisfy ourselves is going to increase as well. So I think we're going to find materialism will become an increasing issue for the church. What does it mean to find our security? Um, not in the value of our stock portfolios, our retirement plans, and our ability to insulate ourselves from the genuine poverty, destruction, and genocide in the world, uh, but in something that lasts a little bit longer. And how will we be a prophetic voice to really a culture that prides itself on consumption, actually relies on consumption to ensure that it's okay? The last thing I want to add maybe about this is that as churches like yours engage in this project and determine Um, How will technology uh, be both the tool that we use as well as the culture we live in but not our master? How will we engage the realities of globalization as it affects not just the world but our communities and our homes and our neighborhoods? Um, How will we speak the reality of Christ in an ever increasingly diverse culture? Um, How will we challenge materialism and its power in the kind of fundamental American story? The last thing I think the church can be challenged with is its own unity. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I'm struck by how uncivil and unkind the conversation is, both politically but also in the church world. And I'm struck by Jesus' final prayer for us in John where he said um, the way that the world would know that uh, Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord and that the Father sent him was how it, the church loved one another. What will it mean for the church to demonstrate the unity in the body of our unity in the body of Christ in such a way that it becomes a compelling apologetic for the world around us? So those are my thoughts on um, some of the top challenges facing the church in the next 20 or 40 years. Uh, God bless you. Thanks for the opportunity to join you, uh, even in this kind of odd way. And I look forward to seeing you again in the next couple of months, perhaps on a Sunday. Take care.